The following presentation is from Mountain Park Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Mountain Park, along with additional audio and visual teachings, visit mountainpark.org. Yeah, we're so glad you're here. Uh, welcome, everybody. My name's Alan. Uh, I hope you're having a fantastic Memorial Day weekend. And uh, so glad that you're here. If you're friends uh, visiting from out of town or whatever, uh, uh, glad that you're here with us. I want to start by connecting with that clip and just asking you, who's the worst boss you've ever had? Who's the worst boss you've ever had? Uh, when I was in high school, I worked at a gas station, and it was old school gas station where I had to wear the overalls, and I washed windows and checked the oil and, and you know, full service kind of deal and get tips one every 20 times you'd get a tip. And, uh, and, uh, and I had a boss who during that time would say to me and my other, my peers who were working with me, uh, said, hey, I got a great plan for you. Just kind of on the side, you give me $100 and, I'll, and he had a diagram, he showed it all out, and he said, and then, and then multiple people, you get in on the ground floor, you get in in the beginning, and then multiple people will come in behind us and invest their $100 into this thing that we're doing, and then you will eventually start to get portions of what they're uh, pouring into it. So if you get in now, you can be part of this. Well, this sounds like a great idea. So I can have money rolling in. Oh, I love it. Here you go. And I, I gave him the $100 and, uh, and uh, uh, never saw anything of that $100 and never heard any word from it again. And after talking to my dad afterwards, learned what a pyramid scam was and, you know, learned the whole thing. So good. I learned something. But what kind of a boss would say to a 16-year-old kid, hey, I got a plan for you. Would you just give me $100 and we'll walk away from it? What kind of a person would do that? Who's the worst boss you've ever had? Well, let me ask a more, uh, more important question this morning. Who's the boss of your life? What's the org chart for your life? Who makes the decisions in your life? Who makes the fi final decision? Who do you report to? Who are you accountable to? Who do you submit to? Who's your go-to in your own life? I'm not talking about your uh, place of business, the org chart there. I'm not talk even talking about home life. I'm talking about you personally, yourself, your person. Who is in charge? Who's the boss of you, your future, your decisions, etc.? That's what we're talking about here today. As we head into that, would you bow your heads with me real briefly? Father, I'm so thankful once again that we get to gather here in this place, that we get to pause from the pace of life and just at least gather in, in community in this moment and make you the, the focus of our, of our attention, God. And wherever we are here in this room, however close or far we may feel, God, we are thankful that you are here. Would you nudge us, God? Would you, would you uh, take us closer to the place that you want us to be? We surrender that to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in our culture, many people would um, quickly and confidently answer that question of who's in charge, who's the boss of your life, would answer that question and say, well, me. I'm, I'm the one who has ultimate say. I'm the one who's responsible for my life. Nobody else is responsible but me. I'm the boss. I'm the one in charge of my life. What I want to do as I begin here today is just talk about how we as humanity have come to the place where that's that's our answer. That, that's our answer. And, there's, and we'll see over the next few minutes that, that that answer has grown over the past 
few centuries. Because what we're doing um, here this year is, once again, we're looking at the overall story of God, what I like to call the whole shebang, from the very beginning to the glimpses we have of the very end. We're looking at the whole story of God. And where we are right now is in the section I call the church, which represents the 2,000 years between the New Testament story and today. And, uh, and in that journey, we've seen a, 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 a significant change in terms of who's the boss, who's in charge of our lives. Uh, before the, the 16th century, uh, in, in human history, the, the, the brightest thinkers, the smartest people, the, the intellectual leaders of humanity were theologians, primarily. It was the people who studied and wrote about and talked about God. They were the ones who were the primary thinkers of, of the world. It was uh, Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and, and Martin Luther, and these were the world-shaping uh, leaders uh, of, of the day. And then something changed in around, uh, in around the 17th, 18th century with something that some refer to as the scientific revolution. That when science started to rocket ship in those centuries, that science took over theology. That the theologians were taking a backseat to the scientists, and it's the scientists for the past number of centuries who have been our brightest thinkers, the most intelligent uh, people, the ones leading uh, human thinking for the past number of years. So the scientific revolution, it started with the physical sciences. In the 17th and 18th century, it was stirring up new discoveries in the physical sciences. There's, there's no better example than Galileo, who was, who was not an anti-church person whatsoever. But Galileo had this absurd idea that instead of the sun revolving around the earth, that the earth revolves around the sun. He had astronomical evidence that the earth revolved around the sun. And the church, the theologians, the, the smart thinkers of the day said, no, you're wrong because the Bible doesn't say that. Because the Bible has indicators throughout that say the earth is the center of the universe. And so the theologians were saying to the scientists, no, you're wrong. Branded him a heretic and then put him in house arrest for the rest of his life because he wouldn't let go of his, of his scientific conclusion that the earth actually revolved around the sun. And then also in the physical sciences, we have Sir Isaac Newton, who of course made significant uh, um, uh, formulations in terms of physics and Newton's laws of motion that are still the, the primary part of understanding how the physical world works around us. One thing you may not know about Sir Isaac Newton is that he was the original lead singer of Led Zeppelin. That's, you may not have known that. In the early days, uh, that's uh, what he did. So we have the physical sciences in the 17th and 18th century. Then we get into the 19th century, and then the scientific revolution was going into the biological sciences led by Charles Darwin and the concept of, of evolution and saying that, that the way we came to be was dramatically different than the way the theologians had been talking about this for a long time. That now the world around us through the physical sciences and the biological sciences, the world around us was being understood in a completely new way. It was being understood on its own. 
without reference to God or to Scripture or to the Bible. That in the past, it was the theologians who would start with Scripture and say, okay, how does this help us understand the world in which we live? But now the scientists are saying, we don't need Scripture. We don't need God we can start to explain the world around us in ways that we couldn't before. That the mysteries of life, the mysteries of creation, the mysteries of the world around us, they're now being explained by science rather than by theology, rather than by the theologians. It was this significant change in, in thought for humanity. 17th, 18th century was the physical sciences and the biological sciences in the 19th century. Then in the 20th century, early 20th century, there were uh, dramatic changes in behavioral sciences led by Sigmund Freud. Freud, uh, as many of you know, was uh, very anti-church, anti-religion, believed that, that instead of humans being made in the image of God, that God was made in the image of humans, that God was a construct made by uh, humanity in order to handle what was going on in life, etc. His hope for the future was that science and reason, he was not alone in this either, is that science and reason would take place of faith in God. This is where he was going. You just look at him and you think, now that's a guy I would want to tell my deepest, darkest secrets to. Doesn't he just look like that kind of a guy? Got a big old cigar. And anyway, uh, uh, so the theme this year, as we walk through the overall story of God, the theme this year is something new. That what we find throughout Scripture, throughout the story, is that God is inviting us, uh, is, is wanting to do something new in and through us. And it's a beautiful repetition time and time again of God and saying, God saying, I want to do something new through the nation of Israel. I want to do something new uh, through Jesus with a new covenant. And I want to do something new in you and in your life and in your future. So there's something new. is this beautiful repeated piece coming across. The title for today is A New God. And what I want to do is I want to look at how the scientific revolution and the age of enlightenment that flowed out of that it, it really um, gave tremendous strength to a new God called self. That there was, there was such a, a shift from, from God's role to all we need is ourselves. That it is all about us. And I want to go back to Sigmund Freud for a little bit. And, and just kind of, some of you are way more familiar with Freud than I am, but just how influential he was in terms of, of the role of self in our journey in the early 20th century. And so Freud had this, this idea of the id and the ego and the superego. The id and the ego and the superego. I think this is so interesting because it, it connects so much with the overall spiritual story. But here, here's Freud saying that the id is our subconscious um, uh, rampant desire for pleasure. The id is just the, the, the primal desire for whatever we want. We don't care about consequences. We don't care how it affects other people. We want what we want. And that psychoanalysis, which was a Freudian thing, the whole idea of going back into our subconscious and finding out from our childhood and things that, that certainly have affected psychology since then, this whole journey was to go into the id, find out the sources of our desires, and then to deal with them and, and change them or whatever. But that our, our pleasure-seeking journey is this id concept. On the other end of the spectrum is the superego. And the superego 
is our moral structure. It's not an uh, an absolute morality that is set up somewhere outside of ourselves. It is the, the morals of the society in which we live. It is the right and wrong that is defined by culture as we live in. The superego says there are boundaries, there are limitations to what the id desires. And the superego says we, we've got to try to counterbalance this some way. There's got to be some limit, some morality. In between there is the ego, the self. The ego, what a great word. I mean, the ego is trying to balance between the id, between the pleasure of I want it now, and the superego, the boundaries of you can't have everything. That the id is the one that is, is, that id is our self and it's our life wrestling between the yes of the id, or the ego is the in between, wrestling between the yes of the id and the no of the superego. The little... Um, the little uh, you know, demon on one shoulder, no, no, and then the angel on the other shoulder. And it's the ego that has to wrestle through all of that. Essentially, Freud was saying, there is no, there is no absolute evil. There's no enemy. There's no Satan. There's no uh, enemy of your soul. Um, that it's just you. It's just you. It's your id. It's your subconscious. It's all that's bouncing around in your brain. It's just you. There is no entity outside of yourself that is attacking you, that is attacking the world, that is making the world a broken place. There's no serpent. There's no temptation outside of you. It is you. It is your own id and your own desires. In addition to that, there's no God. There's no higher power. There's no creator. There's no loving super being. There's just the super ego. It's just you. It's yourself. It's your own understanding of, of and construct of your morality, etc. It's just you, and it's limited to you. What that means is that the whole story, whole, all of human existence, what I like to call the whole shebang, the big story, the grand epic story that makes us realize there's more to this than in our own lives, that our decisions impact on a, a grand story. All of that is all condensed and combined into you. It's all just about your own self, your own brain, your own what happened in the past. There's nothing outside of yourself. And that is a pathetically small world. It's a pathetically small story when it's just about yourself. And it goes against the whole concept of God's, God as creator. And God is being involved in the story for the whole part of it. I want to look at, at, uh, at a story that Jesus tells 2,000 years ago, and uh, part of the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 4, if you brought your Bibles, Mark chapter 4, Mark is a, uh, is a get-to-the-point gospel writer, and so there are uh, four different gospels, and they have kind of different, different kind of strengths, and Mark is the shortest gospel, and it is, boom, get to the point. Here in Mark chapter 4, Jesus gives multiple illustrations to help us understand the kingdom of God, to help us understand God's role and our role in this whole story and how we interact, etc. And so I want to read uh, from one of these perhaps lesser known, shorter parables of Jesus here in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 26. Mark 4, verse 26, he says, This is what the kingdom of God is like. These are the words of Jesus A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, 
first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts it the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Now, first of all, we are supposed to eat grain. And as a, as a brief tangent this morning, <laughs> for those of you who were here last week, I introduced uh, the fact that I'm, I'm now on day 12 of, a, of an eating journey called Hell 30. I mean, Whole 30. I always, I always get that mixed up. Uh, and, it, and it's a journey where you're, uh, my wife and I are in this. It's really quite fun. It's actually a spiritual journey for us, but, but, but physically, it's a disaster. I mean, it's, it's no sugar, no dairy, no grains of any sort. And so, yeah, keep praying for, for us, and uh, it's ridiculous. But, but I, I love reading stuff like this, and I can't, you know, with my mind, my weak mind right now reading this and going, see, I'm supposed to eat grain. I am supposed to eat grain. Jesus even says, give us this day my daily bread, and that's my prayer every day. Give us this, my day. My, I want pizza. I want pizza today. But anyway, so that's a side note. Um, more importantly, here uh, we find at the end of verse 27 that while the farmer is sleeping, that, that, that the grain is developing, the grain is growing, and he doesn't know how, and he doesn't need to know how. That, that science is not, is not the ruler here. That this farmer is going through life and enjoying God, enjoying the creation. He doesn't even know how the seed grows, and neither do we. With all of our brilliance, we still don't know how that seed does what it does. We are so scientifically advanced, it is unbelievable. What has happened in our lifetimes is unbelievable. You sit there right now where you are, and most of you here in this room, you have a supercomputer in your hand or in your pocket or in your purse with you right now that can access nearly infinite amount of information right where you are, and it can be used as a phone. That's mind-blowing. We right now, cars are learning to drive by themselves, and we all know we're getting, we're getting amazingly close to that actually happening. And Chandler, they're doing all sorts of experiments to, to make that happen. Uh, uh, the virtual reality is just getting closer and closer to, to radically changing communication and how we interact with one another. That science is doing amazing things, mind-boggling things right now. But yet there are so many things that science cannot explain. And so many things that science will never explain. With all of the things that we know what to do, we still don't know why cats purr. Science, scientists cannot explain, because they, they purr, not just for pleasure, they purr for other reasons. And science, science, they can't explain why. Why does a cat purr? That, scientists can't explain why anyone would want a cat. I mean, that's another <laughs> thing. There's lots of things that scientists cannot explain. Scientists can't explain uh, why cows graze facing either north or south. Very rarely do they graze facing east or west. Did you know that? Get out your supercomputer and take a look at that one. They can't quite explain that one. They can't explain how an octopus can, can cruise on the ground, the surface of the sea, and then land over something and imitate not only the, the color, but also the texture of the, of the surrounding area instantly. How does it do that? How do the molecules change, you know, alter in that way, the color and the, of the molecules? Scientists cannot explain that. Scientists can't explain. <sighs> Sorry. 
Uh, scientists cannot explain how even with a fake yawn that other people can't help but yawn in response. Did anybody yawn there in that moment? Okay, thank you. I had a few of you. A few of you. There's one still in the middle of it, so that's good. So, uh, so I mean, it's, even when, I mean, we just cannot stop the, the yawn response, and scientists don't even know why we yawn. There's no explanation as to why, what this is, what the brain needs, what the oxygen level needs or whatever, and it just, scientists can't explain some of these things. We can't explain how the Anaheim Ducks beat the Edmonton Oilers in the playoffs this year. Scientists cannot explain that, and they never will be able to. We can't explain how in, in, in one family where a, a child grows up and it's, it's just an awful situation, it's incredibly unstable and unloving, and yet that child grows up and, and is incredibly stable and, and loving and intelligent and an incredible um, uh, future and contribution to society. And then in another family that is incredibly loving and, and, and grace-filled and, 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 and just teaching the child and growing the child and developing the child and pouring into the child, and yet that child just stumbles and struggles with, with addictions and different issues. Scientists can't explain how those things can happen in two very different families, how those, how those paths can cross like that. We can't explain that stuff. No one can explain why anyone would hurt a child ever. No one's ever going to be able to explain that. Science, science doesn't know how some things work in life. While you were sleeping last night, you breathed oxygen in and exhaled carbon dioxide throughout the night, all without your own control, your own power. You, your heart beat about 20,000 times last night when you slept. 20,000 times throughout the night. You can't explain that. That's not, that's not in your control. That's not about yourself and how you did that. While you were sleeping, the earth, uh, last night, the earth made a significant rotation around the axis. And while you were sleeping, it, it made a, a slight movement in its rotation around the sun. All of that was happening while you were sleeping. And seeds throughout the world were were making their way through soil, bursting through the surface. Last night while you were sleeping, you had nothing to do with it. And you'll eat grain later on. You'll, you'll, you'll enjoy it, I won't, but you'll enjoy <laughs> grain later on that, 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 that at some point bursts through the soil through no power of any farmer anywhere else. That we are absolutely brilliant in our culture right now, no doubt about it. And yet there are so many things that we don't know, we don't understand, that are beyond us. Before I went to college, I went back and forth in my, in my spiritual journey between this Jesus stuff and the way that everyone else was living life. Everyone else, all my friends at school were living life. And I, I, I was one person on Sundays and Saturday nights if there was a youth gathering or whatever. And, and I was just trying to figure this all out, but I was bouncing dramatically back and forth, um, working through all this stuff. And I didn't settle down until my second year of college. And I got involved with a campus ministry. And I will never forget one of the central teachings of that campus ministry that that helped me understand the difference between these two lives that I was bouncing around in. 
And it was this diagram that, that I remember, and I looked it up this week and, and found nearly the exact same diagram because it's, it's, it's been you know, used and known by so many people. Some of you might be familiar with this. It's this idea of these two circles, that there's a natural man and a spiritual man. You can tell this is old because it's, it's not gender neutral. Sorry about that. I mean, this is old. This is this whole idea that on the left, you can put yourself on the throne. That's what the S is. You can put yourself on the throne and you can work through life. You're the boss. You're in charge. And Christ is either outside of your life or he's inside the circle, but he's not on the throne. Or on the right, there's the spiritual journey where Christ is on the throne and the self is at the feet of the throne, submitted fully to Christ. And so the question then is, which circle describes your life? We, have a, a natu- we are naturally prone towards putting ourselves on the throne. We, we are, that's just the way we are naturally set up to be with, with uh, centuries of human history that lead us towards, it's myself on the throne. I'm the boss. I'm the one in charge. That's the natural way that we go. Sometimes I go to pick up my kids. I don't know if any of you uh, parents can relate to this, but um, sometimes I go to pick up my kids from a public place and they're in a, in, a, in, in a mall or in a movie theater or someplace where I go inside to pick them up. I park and then go inside to pick them up. We're walking out the, the building and leaving the, the, and exiting the, the building and my kids are in front of me. They're either talking to one another or they're talking with their friends depending on who I'm picking up. And they're in front of me. They, they head out the door and then they turn left and keep on walking while my car is parked to the right. And I find that so fascinating. And so I just follow them. They, they leave and they go to the left. And then uh, someday if, I'm, if, I, if I'm in a hurry, then I say, where are you going? And they say, I, I, I don't know. You know, and I said, well, I'm parked over here. Okay. And then he said, but if I have extra time, then I just follow them wherever they're going. It's so, you just kind of, I just, where, where is this happening? And then eventually they stop and they go, where's the car? <laughs> have you ever, have you ever had this happen? And, and so then I say, I'm parked way over there. I know it's really hot and it's a long walk to go back to the car that was right by the door, just to the right, if we had exited that way. And, and then they look at me and they say, why are you such an idiot, Dad? I mean, they look at me as if I had made some mistake because I should have stopped in this. We are so prone to put ourselves on the throne to say, I'm in charge, I'm the boss, even when we have no idea what we're doing. Even when we have no idea where we're going. That when we put ourselves on the throne, when we put ourselves in charge, when we say, we are the boss, what we're essentially saying is, I don't care how this affects other people. I want it. I don't care how this affects my parents. I don't care how this affects my spouse. I don't care how this affects my kids. What I care about is what I want. What we essentially say when we put ourselves on the throne is we say, I don't care what God says. I don't care what scripture says. I don't care what the church says. I know the path that I want to take. And I'm going to take it. And that kind of life with self on the throne is not a long-term sustainable way of living. History has proven time and time again that civilizations cannot survive when people um, continually take on 
uh, the self being the driver and that individuals in a society say, I'm going to do whatever I want. That, that, that eventually a civilization gets to that point. You, we talked about Ro- the Roman Empire last week and that was so much a part of their journey that they just said, it's all about me. And the whole thing just disintegrated. That the more self-focused a culture gets, the closer that culture is to its demise. And we just see that time and time again, that the self on the throne is an anthropological error. We just cannot exist in that way. However, there's another way of doing it, where we put Christ on the throne. We say, Christ, you are the boss. You are the one who's in charge. I submit, I surrender to you. I take your words seriously, Jesus, when in Mark, Mark chapter 8, he says, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. We take that seriously. And then as we see in the diagram, things in life start to align. They start to line up. They start to make sense. Last week, if you were here, I talked about drawing a line in the sand. I talked about uh, uh, drawing a, a, a a solid line that says, I will, I will not cross that line anymore. And that we have a tendency sometimes to, to have soft, uh, gentle, careful, overly careful steps um, uh, to, to, uh, to try to, you know, maybe go back and forth on this or a little bit of maybe in the church and we're kind of soft in general. And sometimes it requires us to take an aggressive move to go against the patterns of this world, to do something big and new and bold, and to say, I will not cross that line. For a period of time, for whatever, I'm going to say, I am, I am not going to do this. And at the end of my message last Sunday, it wasn't in my notes, but at the end, right before I prayed, I said, as a hope to encourage you, I said, you can do this. And my wife said to me last Sunday um, at home afterwards, she said, Alan, when you said that at the end, She said, I wanted to stand up and say, no, which would have been a really interesting moment. I mean, uh, that would have been a memorable moment right there. She said, said, Alan, yeah, it's, it's the whole point is that we can't do this. The whole point is that we can't do this on our own, that we need Christ in order to make this stuff happen. That, that yes, we can draw a line and all that, but it's about, it's about eventually saying, Christ, you are in charge. You be the one to tell me what line I'm going to draw. I'm, I'm, I'm done with being the one on the throne. Christ, you tell me what line to be drawn. Christ, you come in and help me understand what area of my life do you want to work on. And then you give me the strength and the power in order to, to do that. I no longer want to be in charge. I no longer we want to be on the throne. You are the boss. You are in charge. What picture best describes your life? What I tried to do in my early years of, of being a follower of Christ is I, I tried to go back and forth depending on what was convenient for me. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's hypocritical. It's two-faced. And when we say, okay, Christ, now you can be on the throne, but I'm going to take it back in a little bit, guess who's still in charge? We're still in charge. You can't bounce back and forth. You've got to choose one or the other. So as you look back on this week, you look back at the decisions you've made, you look back on your thought life this week, you look back on how you've interacted and how you've treated people this week, as you look back on these past seven days, honestly, who do you say has been on the throne? 
Who, would you say that, that the self has been in charge this past week or that Christ has been in charge this past week? And then how did this week go? Or another question is, as you think about the, the most difficult part of your life right now, the part of your life that brings you the greatest stress, the greatest tension, as you look at that part of your life and how you're handling that part of your life, who's in charge? Is it the self or is it Christ on the throne in that area of your life? The past few centuries have stirred up tremendous energy and power over the self being the one on the throne, self being the one that is in control, the one that is the boss, the one that is in charge. And we get to decide today, we get to decide going forward, who do you want on the throne of your life? Who's in charge? Who's the boss? Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I, once again, I'm so thankful, God. You meet us where we are. God, for those who are, who are just wrestling with this idea and saying, no, there's no way I can surrender myself. God, I pray that there would be some draw today that says, I want to know more about that. I want, I want to learn more about what it means to have Christ be the center of my life. And God, for those of us here in this room who, who we know, we knew at the very beginning of this message that yes, Jesus is the boss. Jesus is in charge of my life. God, I pray that we would live our lives in accordance with that belief. God, that we would make decisions today, this week, that are in alignment with you being in charge. Help us to do that. Give us the strength to do that. It's not about us. It's all about you. It's always been all about you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.